I'm not sure who needs to hear this, but I'm sure you know that presuming on relationships can be a dangerous experiment. Uh, this last week, retired basketball star Shaquille O'Neal, that great center of the past, was in the news not for basketball, but for parenting. He made a statement where he said, I had to tell my kids recently, we ain't rich. I'm rich. <laughs> now, Shaq was letting his kids know that they should not presume that the wealth that he earned and the name that he built was a name that they had, wealth that was theirs. And it seems that he wanted to encourage a kind of healthy work ethic with his children. Now, there are others who have done this of wealthy status. You'll remember uh, Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, many others have said that they're not giving a lot of their wealth to their kids, just a little, like a few billion dollars, because they want to give them a good work ethic. So you can imagine some asking, what is the benefit of being an O'Neill anyway if it's not our wealth? Well, kids can presume on the kindness of their parents, their patience, their forbearance, and it's really often can be to the great peril of loss, at which point they will likely cry out, unfair. You know, you were, you were patient and patient and patient, and I kept trying and trying and trying, and then you disciplined, and now you're not fair. You were fair every time that you didn't discipline my bad behavior, but now that you have, you're not fair. And what about adult relationships? You know, some have lost friends for presuming on their kindness, relationships of dating or marriage. Uh, there was a 19th century pastor, Albert Barnes, who was warning husbands, even in his day, saying a husband is making a most hazardous as well as wicked experiment who presumes on the patience and forbearance of the most kind and affectionate wife by treating her with neglect and want of love. There is a point beyond which, even if it were right at all, it will not be safe to presume on the kindness of anyone, however kind or generous or noble, end quote. See, the, the, the move, the, this morning, as we are jumping into Romans 3, 1-8, we are finding that Paul seems to be addressing ethnic Jews who presume not on human grace and kindness and faithfulness, but on the very faithfulness of God. They presumed that while they had His law and flesh circumcision, that God was indebted to always act in positive, not negative ways towards them regardless of their behavior. But in Romans 2, Paul says that no one could live up to God's law according to the flesh, and that the flesh, including circumcision and the outward letter of the law, are of no advantage before the just judge who sees to the very heart. And there is now a new covenant that has come in Christ that is actually pierced beneath those fleshly accoutrements that point to the promises of God to the very heart, the thing which was intended in the first place. And as we look at that, what we find is that Paul is making really, I believe, a very profound statement about the nature of where we are in redemptive history. Now that this new covenant has arrived with Christ, only obedience 
proceeding from a heart circumcised by the Spirit of God matters. See, a true Jew is one whom God has circumcised with His hands. Not one that has been sacrificed with the hand, or, or circumcised with the hands of a human. It is a circumcision that is based on God's sovereign grace. Not on outward works, but on His initiative. Because man is, as he has shown in, in Romans 1 and 2, unable to save himself. Now this is kind of a sloppy way to put it, but I, I take this to be Paul's way of saying, ethnic Jews ain't rich. Jesus is. And those spiritually circumcised need Christ too. In Romans 3, 1-8, I, I take it that Paul is actually responding to those ethnic Jews who presumed on God's grace, who were attacking his explanation of the Gospel that highlights a God's sovereignty and salvation whose Spirit circumcises the heart of His people. And a man's inability to obey in his own strength due to his fallen nature is unfair because of God's promises to them in the Old Testament. He says, this doesn't seem right. We have all those promises. What about the promises? Now, our big idea this morning, it's abbreviating what Paul's response is here, but I believe this is the idea that we're going to see. It's that God's sovereignty and man's inability and salvation don't make God guilty for His just judgments or man innocent in His disobedience. Now we'll see this in a number of ways, but we need to build into it. First, we'll see that being entrusted with the oracles of God is actually a major advantage. A major advantage that the Jews had. Now, if physical circumcision doesn't give Jews an advantage in the final judgment, some ethnic Jews seems were asking in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? And what is the value of circumcision? Do we have any value or advantage at all? Now, we anticipate the ethnic Jews have already answered their own question. As they are asking it, they would have said something like this, According to Paul's Gospel, the Jew has no advantage in salvation over the Gentile. He just, we just said that. But a quick read of Romans 2 would leave you feeling like ethnic Jews really didn't have an advantage. No advantage over the Gentiles. It says that, that both equally need the circumcision of heart. But Paul actually answers their question in verse 2. And it's not exactly what they were expecting. Because you'll notice, he says there, not, you're right, no advantage, but instead, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, ethnic Jews, he says, they actually they, they had a great advantage. Now, the phrase to begin with in verse 2 it actually means something like, first of all. And usually you would expect a kind of list of things, but what's interesting is, there is no two, three, or four. So, he's saying, here's a list of one. One very important thing that we have that you need to know about. And that is, that you possess the oracles of God. That is a major advantage. Now, you might be thinking, okay, oracles of God. I think I've heard about oracles in like those weird Greek mythology movies. What is that? Well, great Princeton theologian Benjamin Warfield, he, he studied this phrase and he looked at it beginning with uh, Greek literature from the past and he, he brought it all the way up to the Bible to understand what it is that's trying to be expressed by the oracles of God. 
And here's what he, he said. He concludes this at the end of this article called The Oracles of God. He says, The Old Testament Scriptures as such were esteemed by the writers of the New Testament as an oracular book, which in itself not merely contains, but is the utterance, the very Word of God, and is to be appealed to as such, and as such deferred to because it is nothing other than the crystallized speech of God. It is that before which men must stand in awe, to which they must bow in humility. And this high meaning is not merely implicit, it is explicit in the term. He understands the oracle of, oracles of God to be the Old Testament Scriptures, which are the very words of God crystallized. Now, we get super excited when we find dinosaur fossils. Think about the guy who made the dinosaur with his very words giving you his words. That's what we have in the Scriptures. God entrusted the Jews with every and the very utterance of God. The Old Testament Scriptures. It is what Paul would consider to be an unparalleled treasure and a great advantage for the Jews. In Acts 7.38, Stephen as he is about to be stoned for his faith, he speaks of the Old Testament Scriptures delivered to Moses, saying he received them as the living oracles to give to us. And he's highlighting there that the nature of these oracles that he's received. They are not dead oracles. They are alive. They, they come to life when God's people, led by His Spirit, engage with His words. They create life. Hebrews 4.12-13 says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than every, any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not just actions, but the heart behind the actions. And no creature, he says, is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who must give an account. Kind of a weird way to think about reading the Bible. You are gazing at it, and in it, God is gazing at you. And He is helping you to begin to see yourself in a way that you didn't before you looked to the very words of God. God's Word helps us to see ourselves as we truly are through the eyes of our Creator. God's Word penetrates to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts, exposing who we truly are under the gaze of God who speaks and sees us. It is not an opinion of men that God reveals to us about ourselves through His Word. We, when we see ourselves through the Word of God, we, are, we see ourselves as God sees us through His eyes. Not completely, but specifically and accurately. You've likely heard it said that the Bible is the only book that reads you as you are reading it. And I think that the Bible says that that's absolutely true. This is what the oracles of God do for us. God entrusted that living Word to the Old Testament saints with the Jews to great advantage. They had God's very oracles. I wonder if you've ever entrusted something of great worth to someone else. You understand what it means that God entrusted His Word to Israel. Think about it. We entrust important things to others all the time. I've heard the first time a parent hands the keys off of their car to a teenager. 
the parent is entrusting something of great value to that child. And when my son is 21, I'm sure I'll experience that. (laughs) Sorry, Ben. When a young man comes to your door as a father and he wants to take your daughter on a date, something that's become a greater reality in my imagination as of late, you let him know that he is being entrusted with someone of great value. Sometimes with accessories. You want them to understand that this is not just any woman that he is taking and that she is a valued, treasured possession. When a man buys a diamond ring for his bride, when you go out and you choose a ring as a man, you're not thinking like, what's the cheapest thing I can get by with? Usually he spends a lot of money because he's asking her to entrust her very life with him. And when Jews ask what advantage they have if circumcision doesn't save us from God's wrath, Paul says, you've been entrusted with something far more value than anything this world has to offer. The very crystallized words of God. They reveal the truth about man, God, others, and the life to come. And if there was any hope for a man in his flesh to save himself, then the Jews had every advantage. See, God's Word announces salvation to all those who believe and judgment for those who do not. Jews were entrusted with the very truth of God's Word, His voice. Now, the oracles of God, that describes the Scriptures generally. And they are a treasure. But I believe in Romans 3.3, as you look down, what we're going to find is, is that Paul actually has a particular aspect of the Word of God in mind on behalf of the Jews. He is thinking specifically of their fixation, rightly so, on the promises of God for Israel. So how that word speaks about the future for Israel. That's at the forefront of his mind. And he's thinking of a specific aspect of God's word, God's promises to save them. So notice second that God's judging righteousness redounds to his greater glory in verses 3 to 4. Now Paul began at the beginning of the letter in verses 16 to 17 talking about the gospel and how in it God has revealed His saving righteousness. Well, chapter 2 ended with Paul saying, merely ethnic Jews will not be exempt from God's wrath on the last day. So I understand Paul's question in verse 3 really to embody the, the argument of these ethnic Jews who are claiming that Paul's teaching means that God's unfaithful to His covenant promises. If He judges them, that He's not faithful. And Paul asks in verse 3, you can look there with me, what if, what if, some were unfaithful. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now this question really is centering on Jews who were unfaithful in keeping their covenant obligations to God. And and, and some, that word that begins it, what if some Jews really is an understatement. Uh, Most Jews were unfaithful. How how are they unfaithful? Well, uh, I take it that they, they broke the law and they refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, both of those are impossible to do without the Spirit of God. You can't obey God, as we've seen, without heart circumcision by the Spirit. Uh, You also uh, must believe in Christ, which I believe you have to have a regenerate heart to be able to believe in Him. So how will their unfaithfulness affect God's faithfulness in keeping His covenant promises to save Israel? Will their unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness? Will their unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness in keeping His covenant promises? 
But you can see how that's kind of a problem. God said he would do this, but God's people did that. So if God's people, if he doesn't do this for his people, does that mean that like he's not faithful? Now, Christians, I think, likely have experienced this kind of question in different ways. Uh, maybe you know a Christian who has said that they have begun to kind of question uh, when a pastor or leader sins in a way that it disqualifies them from ministry or maybe even walks away from Christ, whether or not that is because God has not been faithful. Like God, like this man, he was preaching and I, I saw people even believe and now he, he shows that he's, he's not a believer, so have you failed in some way? Have you ever met somebody who walked away from Christ's church altogether because a trusted Christian leader sinned significantly and they didn't come back? Because of that human? And, and, and tracing that back to God and blaming Him? See, they blame the failure of humans for causing them to question God's faithfulness. That's what these Jews seem to be doing. Now, Paul's emphatic response is fitting uh, both for us as Christians who struggle with that, but also as well uh, for these Jews. In verse 4, he says, is God unfaithful to this? His answer, by no means. By no means. Look what he says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now, who's included in everyone? Everyone. Are there any, is there anybody that's not included in that? No. He says, though everybody's a liar, God is always true. Now, I found com commentator Tom Schreiner helpful in this text and, and sort of giving a, a key to understanding where he's going throughout the rest of these verses. You'll notice that he's talking about the faithfulness of God and he's talking about the righteousness of God. Uh, wh what is he doing here? Well, this is what he says. He says the faithfulness of God is complementary with God being true in verse 4. The righteousness of God in verse 5. And the truth of God in verse 7. So let God be true speaks to God's faithfulness to His covenant promises with an, infinite, an emphasis on Jews experiencing that last day salvation. So the imperative nature of this statement, let God be true, really carries a kind of Christian confessional type nature to it. When you say let God be true, you are saying God is true. I confess that. I believe that. Despite what others may say. Despite what others may believe. I know that God is faithful to His promises even if every human is unfaithful. I believe that in the core of who I am. See, God is faithful when pastors and churches fail. And when His word and work exceed my understanding. My own heart might lie to me. You ever had a heart that lies to you? Did it lie so good you didn't know you were being lied to? When your heart lies to you about who God is, you can trust that God is true even above your own heart. See, my own heart might lie to me and tell me that God is unfaithful, but God is the true guide even when my own heart lies. Don't miss this. Paul highlights that the only way any Jew will be saved will be based on God's faithfulness and not the Jews. It is solely an act of God's faithfulness. Now, the question is, do we understand that the saving righteousness of God also comes with His righteous judgments? Uh, you'll notice that he quickly in verse 4 quotes the very oracles of God. That's what it is written signals. He is quoting Old Testament Scriptures. And he's doing this to ground his point 
And it's interesting that he is drawing from an interesting place. He's, he's going to Psalm 51, which is where King David, the great king of Israel, the one who had not only the covenant with Moses that God would bless them, but also the Davidic covenant, and yet after he receives that great Davidic covenant that God would give him an eternal throne from his offspring, that he would rule forever. Uh, we find that though that happens in 2 Samuel 7, immediately in 2 Samuel 11, he falls off the deep end, right? You remember what happens there? That's where he actually commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband Uriah the Hittite to cover it up. He thinks he's gotten away with it. And then Nathan shows up, the prophet, and he exposes David's sin. And Psalm 51 is a psalm where David is talking to God about him being exposed as the king of Israel and as one of the people of God. And his response is, I think, very encouraging and shocking here because he is talking in that psalm about the glories of God's justice. In fact, Psalm 51.4, David says this, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it's followed immediately by the portion that is quoted in Romans 3 there, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David had to pay consequences for his sins. But what does this mean? And, and why does Paul quote this text here? Well, it's interesting. David has recognized that ultimately all sin is sin against God. And his righteous just standards in his word, they are being broken in sin. And God, in, these ver in this verse, it says that he prevails or wins. And interesting, if you look it up, it's actually winning in a, a kind of legal action according to uh, one Greek lexicon that I looked it up in. He is vindicated in his righteousness in his judgment of David. He receives glory even in David's sin. See, Jews focused on the faithfulness of God in saving them. But David himself reveals that God's faithfulness is also in display and is judging his people rightly for their breaking of the law. David was not included in the Mosaic was uh, not only included in the Mosaic covenant, but God's promises to him in the Davidic covenant, and yet he declares that God receives glory not only in righteousness that saves, but a righteousness that judges. See, God is just even when the king of Israel is not, and even when David is above God's justice. He he did not David did not presume on his kingship. He did not presume on the Mosaic covenant. He knew that God was just above Himself and always good in all of His judgments. Now, I believe in the eternal security of the believer. But perseverance of the saints might be a better way to say it. Because of the danger that, that I've seen sometimes that we use eternal security as sort of an encapsulated promise and we then use that almost to kind of justify whatever lifestyle we might live after that or in that or around that. It is possible, I think, that we can use that to presume on God's new covenant promises even as Christians thinking that we don't need to put sin to death in our lives. I remember when I was in college, 
I was tormented because I was in this really unhealthy relationship with a woman that I knew, and I would ask for God's help in prayer. And then I wouldn't end it. And God finally ended it in a painful way that was really what I call God's painful mercy, like an amputation that saves the patient through significant loss. See, my failure to choose Christ above an unhealthy relationship presumed on God's grace. And it was His mercy that brought deliverance. Humans are clever. We are clever in our presumptions and the way that we frame them. Aren't we? You've probably presumed in many ways. Uh, We can presume by appealing to plausible deniability. I kid you not. I once had somebody tell me that they did not read their Bibles because they were worried about what they might find and then they would be culpable. You can think about that later. What about an appeal to immunity? I mean, God wouldn't punish a spiritual infant even if they've been claiming to walk with Christ for four decades. Or an appeal to poor timing. You know, I was was trying to make enough money so I could really get comfortable and then work at being faithful to God in all the ways that I'm, I'm not right now. Or maybe an appeal to a baptism or a church membership. Maybe a really good spiritual experience in college. An appeal to status. I'm a, I'm a pastor. A really gifted, really gifted at teaching, so I'll be judged by a different standard. God needs me. Or an appeal to fruit. I mean, look at all the fruit that I've borne. I mean, fruit is spiritual because it comes from the Spirit. So, I mean, that's, that's for me, right? Or an appeal to family. My family's Christian. An appeal to God's love being more important to God than His justice, which is not the way the the attributes of God work. He is perfectly just and perfectly loving all the time. One does not trump the other. He is perfect in all of His perfections. Now, all of these are really good things, and these things can be an encouragement that we really do know the Lord. But when we begin to use those things to presume on God, to justify all kinds of things that are not in accordance with the kind of spiritual fruit that we read about in the New Testament, we've begun to use those in a way that God did not intend. God is an impartial judge. Let me encourage you, don't presume on His grace. Confess of your sin against Him. Repent of that sin. And amputate where necessary while you can. Because we too need to be careful not to presume on God's new covenant promises. Uh, I was reading uh, from a book recently by 16th century Puritan Matthew Mead. The title is almost a sermon in and of itself, The Almost Christian Discovered. And in it he says, most men are good Christians in the verdict of their own opinion. But you know, the law allows no man to be a witness in his own case. Because their affection usually overreaches conscience. And self-love deceives truth for its own interest. God's Word comes in and it tells us the truth about ourselves. Let the Word do that. Let's be charitable to others as they are seeking to walk faithfully after the Lord and tenacious in seeking to mortify our own sins. Tenacious in seeking to vivify the fruits of the Spirit and glory in the perfection of God's justice even when it exposes us like David. But third, he says God's glory in His judging righteousness isn't a justification for sin in verses 5-8. to Now, some say that Romans 3, 1-8 
are the most difficult verses in Romans to translate, which is a very difficult book anyway. So I just want to say we should have a certain amount of humility when we are reading these verses. But here's what I think that Paul's doing in verses 5 to 8. He's just quoted David. Paul has just declared that God gives righteous judgments that bring Him glory even when His people are unfaithful. Now some ethnic Jews understood they had a kind of political, they understood themselves to have a kind of political immunity from judgment with God. But Paul denies that. He says that's not true. Now here again, Paul is anticipating what verse 8 calls slanderous questions. So he is He's having a dialogue and he's engaging with these questions that are slanderous that are being given towards Paul because of the gospel that he's preaching. They're mocking Paul's theology. Here's the first one in verses 5 to 6. In verses 5 to 6, uh, we'll find that they're going to ask this question, is God unrighteous to judge unrighteous Jews? Now notice, verse 5, it's developing on Psalm 51.4 that we just read. And he says this in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Now, if a few things are true here, that one, God's judgment on the unrighteousness of ethnic Jews redounds to God's glory, as he seems to say here. Showing off God's righteousness. And second, that man is incapable of keeping his righteous standard on his own and unable to contribute anything to his salvation. Third, salvation requires God circumcising the heart spiritually. If those three things are true, then Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on ethnic Jews? As one scholar put it, the justice of divine judgment in view of human inability was the real issue. The the wrath that he speaks of is also phrasing it in the sense of God's last judgment when Jesus comes to judge. Now, this is the question. The question is, is, is God unrighteous? I love that he says, and I speak in a human way. What other way does Paul speak? Uh, I was reading this this week, and I was reminded of a TV show I watched when I was younger. It's called ALF. It's about this hairy, cat-eating alien. Probably messed me up in some ways. But he spoke Melmachian. Paul, I don't think, is saying that I'm going to speak English instead of Melmachian. Right? No, what I think he's saying when he says I'm speaking in a human way is that he is distancing himself from this blasphemous idea that someone might consider God unrighteous to inflict wrath on ethnic Jews. You see, for Paul, he says God is perfect and true and righteous in all that He does. It's who He is. So if you see something that God does is unrighteous, then what needs to change is not God, but your definitions. That's why he responds in verse 6. By no means. For then how could God judge the world if He was unrighteous? The, The Scriptures teach clearly that God will judge the world. Abraham, you'll remember, there's a scene in the Old Testament 
in, in Genesis. In, in Genesis 18, uh, God has told him that he's going in to wipe out Sodom, where his uh, nephew Lot is. And he says, we please have mercy on them. And he intercedes for them. And you remember that he begins by saying, well, what if there's just like 50 righteous people? Would you forgive them? Would you have mercy on them? And he said, no, if you had 50, I wouldn't. What about 40, 30, 20, 10? And the answer is no, no, no. See, Abraham feared there were not even 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. And in Genesis 18.25, God says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is always and only perfectly just in His judgments. He doesn't need our help to figure out justice. Now, I'm sure you've asked yourself, if this or that in my life, personally, I'm sure you've asked, like, is this fair? Was that fair? Did I deserve a better break here or there? Is God... If he's sovereign in some way, being unfair, unjust with me. Now, just to be clear, God has made it very evident that this world does not work the way that it's supposed to. It is broken. There is injustice all around. And we have a sovereign, just God. So those are questions that, that can arise. I'll never forget a, a good brother who's much older than me, who uh, was a, an incredible encouragement to me spiritually. And I remember... People used to ask him, how are you doing? And he would always give the, the same answers I've told you before. Uh, I, I'm doing so much better than I deserve. And I, I would always think, I, I know what's going on in his life. I mean, he's got like two different kinds of cancer. He's had three surgeries in the last year. Uh, I know that he's been slandered like in public media. Like this is a guy who's going through all kinds of bad things. He, he has a, a, a family member who's going through a, a really hard divorce right now. And yet in the midst of that, he says, I'm doing better than I deserve. And that is absolutely theologically true in every way. If we really deserve, got what we deserve, then we would be dead back in the garden. But God has given us mercy every day since. And He has given us not only mercy every day since, but He has given us mercy upon mercy and giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. If we had what we deserved every day, we would wake up in the flames of hell. But it is God's mercy that gives us hope of life and eternal life and forgiveness. And that, that life is only to be found in Him, not in us. It's in the midst of this that you might be asking, okay, well, what next, Paul? Well, he goes on, verse 7 to 8, and he's not done with the, the Jews in their argument. He's drawing implications from it. And here he asks another question, maybe a question that you have thought about before. Things aren't fair, so... Should I just sin to increase God's glory? Should I just sin all the more to increase God's glory? This righteous thing isn't working out for me. Well, I believe this is really an attack on Paul's teaching of God's sovereignty and man's inability, and it gains much clarity in verse 7. Look what he says. He says, But if through my life God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If God is sovereign and I am unable to please God left to myself, and my sin redounds to His glory, why do I get condemned as a sinner apart from faith in Christ? A second related question shows up. I think it might be actually Paul talking about the absurdity of their line of questions, or it could be something they actually say. But in verse 8, he says, And why do not we do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, these two questions really reveal a pragmatic view of sin, right? 
this is one of those ideas where, where the ends justifies the means. Should I do more evil that more good may come, God? Now, you can hear the logic in this. Paul teaches justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if God's grace saves sinners based on Christ's righteousness, not their own, then doesn't God get more glory for His just judgments when we sin? See, more sin equals more judgment, more justice. That's on the one side, but then don't forget the other side. And more forgiveness and mercy in Christ on the other. I mean, couldn't that kind of doctrine lead people to living a, a life of rampant sin on one hand, or simply giving up on the other because obedience might seem not to matter at all? Well, Paul's going to unpack this more later. I mean, he, he kind of creates more questions as he goes. But for now, Paul explains that he's been voicing the objection of ethnic Jews to Paul's gospel, which he calls slander. Now, here's, here's what this means. That's not the gospel that he teaches. In fact, those who teach what they say he teaches, they deserve a just condemnation and will receive it for what they're teaching. Now, sometimes we talk about doctrines that are dangerous and others that are deadly. Some doctrines aren't necessarily deadly, meaning that you're not a Christian if you believe them, but they're sort of a gateway drug to deadly doctrines. This is a deadly doctrine according to Paul. If you believe that you can sin all the more, that grace may abound, he says that is slander and you will be condemned. You're not a Christian. Paul literally says if you believe that, your sin works out to God's greater glory. Therefore, you should not be condemned. Your condemnation is actually just. That's a doctrine that leads to hell. That's not the obedience that comes from faith that Paul introduced at the beginning of the letter. It's not that obedience that comes from a circumcised heart by the Spirit. So let me just close with a few quick uh, applications first. Christian, be reminded. Be reminded this morning that God has entrusted us with even more than the Old Testament saints. He's given you His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's faithfulness on display in living a perfectly righteous life that is accredited to your account when you put your faith in His death on your behalf at the cross and His resurrection that promises eternal life to all who repent and believe in Him. He's the living Word of God who took on flesh and revealed, uh, is revealed in the New Testament. Jesus points His people to the Scriptures as the very speech of God that leads to life. We as Christians really have an embarrassment of riches in that we have the substance of what the Old Testament prophet, prophets eagerly looked to see. You have better sight from your point of view than the prophets of old did. Are you squandering what you've been entrusted with? Or are you studying and marveling at the very words of God. And do you need to turn this morning from sin today because you've been presuming on God's grace in your life in ways that you need to live differently? In Trinity Bible Church, let us not forget that God has entrusted us as the church with the very oracles of God which culminate and climax in Jesus Christ. You'll remember that later, Paul is speaking to the young pastor, Timothy, about putting a church in order. And one of the things that he reminds him of in 1 Timothy 3.15 is that the church is the, what? Pillar and buttress of truth. This side of redemptive history, the church have, is, are those 
who have been called to take and hold on to and teach and preach and protect the truth of God. In fact, if you think about what pillars are in Rome and Greece, they would have columns and the pillars would carry uh, signs or letters of importance so that people passing by would see them and read them and understand. Uh, now you might be thinking like, that's a little bit far beyond me. We're in the wild, wild west. So think about a most wanted picture that's on a post in a western or on a billboard in a, a mail room. Some of y'all have not been to a mail room. But you, you get what I'm saying. Like we, we are meant to be the embassy which holds up the truth of the Gospel to a world that is looking in so that we are protecting the truth, we are declaring the truth. But not only that, we're a buttress of truth in the sense that we are protecting good doctrine. We need to make sure that we are understanding what truth is, that we know it, that we're protecting it. And that is not just something that pastors and elders do. That is something that local churches do together. The church itself as a whole collectively is the pillar and buttress of truth. Now here's what that means. It means that we need to be interested in theology. The, the other day I was talking to, to Malachi, and he's been teaching these great classes on the Apostles' Creed, and, and, and he, he did one on the Trinity. And as he was teaching on those, he said, you know, one of the things I get worried about sometimes is people, when they want to be taught, uh, they often want to know something that's going to change their life like Monday in a way that they know directly corresponds to their life. So give me ten ways to be a better dad. Great, I'll do that tomorrow. But the problem is the Bible has a lot more to say about who God is and about who you are and about what we ought to believe. So one of the most important applications that you can have even before your actions is what you believe. Are you shoring up what you believe so that you can help be part of what is the pillar and buttress of truth? Like, learn theology. Push your mind and your heart to see bigger things about God. That is part of the reason that God has placed you where you are at this point in redemptive history is declare the marvelous nature of His excellencies before all. And maybe you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian. Don't miss this. God is sovereign over salvation and you are unable to save yourself but we have a God who saves. And He will by no means reject anyone who comes to Him in faith. Do not hesitate. Do not pause. Do not presume that you have another day before the God who has numbered your days. Turn to Him in faith today and be saved. Don't leave this place without finding salvation. You can talk to me. I'm sure there are a number of brothers and sisters in here who would love nothing more than to share Christ with you. But do not hesitate in coming to our righteous God by faith in Christ. Let's pray.